shooting. Skimmer Way near Lakeland, Charles 478, Tango. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Zebalero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, happy Friday, everyone. It's time once again to go Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Zebalero. And with me always is my friend. You know, you got Evan and Costello. You've got Tom and Jerry. You've got those great pairs. And here's my better half, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you? I'm fine, man. Are, are you the peanut butter to my jelly or, or vice versa? Makes no difference. One should go on one side of the bread. One should go on the other side of the bread. And when they come together, they make a great pair. They make magic together. That's right. They do, man. What's <laughs> going on with you, my Cajun friend? Oh, brother, I am I am battling a cold. I'm sitting here in my beanbag chair. Uh, but the the Shinerbach has been replaced by NyQuil, and, and my Cheetos have been replaced by vitamin C tablets. I'm hurting here. Yeah, man, no, no fun in summertime colds, huh? It's horrible. It's it's the man flu, man. I, you know, and Nancy makes fun of it and says, "Oh, guys are such babies." And I'm like, no, this this would have sidelined a normal human being. This would have rendered them bed bound. <laughs> but I'm soldiering through because that's the kind of guy that I am. You just continue down along the path of heroism, and that's uh, right. You are an inspiration to all of us, but. Uh, Today's the day, man. Let's go ahead and do some news, and you get the uh, you get the honor of the first story. What do you got for us? Uh, there's a story just today uh, from Maple Grove Township, Michigan. A twin EMS ambulance was struck by a car and ran a stop sign in Saginaw County. Um, the crew uh, only had minor injuries. Car driver was uh, transported to the hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. But I urge our, our listeners to go look at the pictures of this what is used to be an ambulance uh on ems one's website uh and it it just points to the the uh flaws in ambulance design this thing is is toast it totally disintegrated um there is no ambulance anymore there's a cab uh and uh and really nothing else um and it just uh you know, we talk about uh, ambulance safety and, and safety measures in our field and, and uh, new standards for ambulance module design. Uh, and it's pretty obvious here that at least in this box ambulance, whoever made it, uh, the structural integrity was um, pretty much non-existent. Uh, you know, I've got coworkers who hate working in sprinter ambulances, but I dare say that a sprinter or a van ambulance uh, would have held together far better than this big uh former uh box module ambulance you know it's funny but i think that there's a lot of things that we need to know here man we need to know how fast that other car was going we need to know what that other car was we're assuming it's a car you know depending on the speed and you know that accident happened you know i think that could happen with any ambulance i think that could happen with any vehicle and uh but you know again let's go back to the pictures and it, it is truly amazing that you can't even make out that this is you know what kind of vehicle this is and I think that that is a little bit telling that uh, we need to kind of pay attention to uh, yeah. how those ambulances are designed. But I would like to have known a little bit more of the chess game, you know, yeah. i.e. how fast the, the vehicle was going, uh, what kind of vehicle it was. But uh, like you said, it, it does yeah. uh, raise your eyebrow. Yeah, I, I don't think it's something you can put on a particular um, chassis manufacturer, an ambulance manufacturer. 
Um, I, I think this speaks to the the state of uh, of ambulance design and, and how it needs to be reformed. Um, it's pretty obvious that the structural integrity of this vehicle was for naught. That's something that Nadine Levick and, and other people point out in their their talks on uh, safety and and uh, uh, ambulance design. And uh, it was certainly lacking in this area. Maybe this will be one more step in getting us safer vehicles to work in. Yeah, like an armored tank or something. Yeah, an MRAP. That's what I want. I want an ambulance MRAP. That's okay. what I want. Uh, with that plow on the front so we can yeah. see that traffic, right? That's right. That's Twin water-cooled 50s and a snowplow bumper. That's exactly. what I want. We should sit here and we should develop the ambulance of tomorrow. That's what we should do. But <laughs> my story goes to Frankfort, Kentucky, man. The Kentucky governor ceremoniously signs the EMS line of duty death benefit bill. And I think, you know, anytime we see this, we really have to bring you know, some type of awareness to it, because when we think about line of duty deaths, EMS has been historically left out of benefits, you know, when it comes to delivering uh, care to the citizens. And, you know, God forbid something happens to where, you know, our life now has become compromised, uh, our families aren't going to be taken care of. And I think that there has to be some type of bill there has to be some type of program. There's got to be some type of way that EMS personnel to get uh, taken care of uh, in the uh, event that this, uh, you know, this happens. And, uh, you know, good on Kentucky for uh, stepping up and setting a standard for others to follow. Indeed. Yeah, congratulations to the folks in Kentucky and, and good on uh, Governor Matt Bevin um, signing the John Mackey Memorial Act. Uh, I think it's high time that EMS providers uh, got uh, comparable line of duty death benefits uh, to our, our brethren in public safety, fire suppression, and, and law enforcement. Uh, I think it's a uh, been a long time coming, and I, I certainly hope that other uh states follow suit i know that we're working on the same thing in in louisiana and, and hopefully it uh it comes to pass i think more states need to uh follow suit here but uh you know great for louisiana awesome for kentucky and let's see if we can get some other states behind that but uh, what do you got next for us we've got from june 21st out of elk grove california good samaritan steps in to help a family in danger gets charged with a medical bill Derek DeAnda uh, arrived on the scene of a crash, uh, breaking some vehicle glass to free uh, family members who were trapped in a in a wrecked vehicle. It was on its side. One of the drivers is holding a two-year-old infant, and uh, DeAnda stopped, uh, helped people out of the wreck. Uh, paramedics arrived. Everything was everybody was okay, um, and DeAnda had a minor superficial cut on his hand, and got a bill from the fire department there for 140 bucks. Uh, and he's like, well, you know, uh, that teach me to stop for, uh, stop and offer aid. If I'm going to get a bill for 150 bucks, why would I stop somebody? Uh, why do I stop and help somebody in the future? Um, and this is part of the fire department's, uh, program to, uh, to bill for cancellations and refusals and, and, and stem, uh, inappropriate calls for 911. Uh, I think they applied it wholly inappropriately in this case, uh, uh, and it leaves them with some some egg on their faces, and deservedly so. Yeah, and I don't really understand this. I mean, so uh, you know, when, and I read the story, and but when we talk about uh, billing, I mean, what about the the tax rate that the fire department is getting um, to take care of their citizens? So are they still going to now? People are paying taxes, and they still got to pay an EMS bill. 
Um, so I was a little bit confused in how this story went, but regardless of that, you know, here's a guy who was helping. Uh, you know, he delivered care. These guys were on scene to try to help and deliver the best care that they can. And uh, I think that what does it take to, uh, you know, put a bandage on someone's hand, a little four by four, take some clean, you know, tell them how to keep that up. And are we really going to start charging people for those things? Well, I think it's one of those cases where you can send out as many bills as you want. But I don't know that a lot of these bills are going to get paid. Yeah, Deputy Chief Mike McLaughlin said his, his district built him because the paramedic checked him out at the scene and he had a small cut. And he says, quote, we're obligated to provide the same level of service, the same billing, the same everything for every patient we encounter. Uh, false. You are not required to provide uh, the same everything for every single bo- every single person. I think that's a blanket application of a policy that's fairly flawed. Um First of all, uh, the policy uh, was apparently designed to uh, to uh, prevent or to curtail uh, inappropriate calls for 911 and, and uh, cut back on the, the refusals that cost us money to run. Um, but first of all, you have to define what a refusal is and what a patient is. You know, and, a, and a, uh, by definition, the only person who can refuse care is a patient. And I would question whether a bystander who got a, a tiny little glass cut helping out a wreck victim is actually a patient. Um, you know, and and obviously this is this is a policy that they have in place that needs some some revision and some some fine tuning. Uh, I think it was very poorly applied here, and it, it doesn't look good for the uh, for the fire department EMS in that regard. So yeah, I think you bring um, up I think you bring up a good point. So when we talk about that, I mean there there is a flip of the coin. Now we we get different types of callers when we're you know responding to a call. You know you get a first party call, which is the person mm-hmm. you know, who uh, you know needs the act. You get a second party call, who I'm with the patient. You know, you get a third-party call, which is, you know, they may not even be in the same building with the patient, and they're calling 911. So think about this scenario, man. I mean, here it is, this guy's on scene, he's bleeding, and I'm a paramedic, and I walk up to him and say, let me take care of that for you. You know, if he's not looking for the care, and we go ahead and just administer that care, should we be sending a bill for 100? And I don't know if this is what happened in this case, but I think that it opens up the scenarios that, you know, if we get on scene of a, a multi-patient accident, and we see somebody bleeding, and they didn't ask for care, and we just render care, should we be billing them for that? You know, so I think yeah. there's a lot of scenarios here that really kind of, you know, open up our eyes to say, you know, we got to pay attention to if somebody asks us and then becomes a patient um or if we're just doing the right thing and just covering somebody's wound well you know um, part of the part of the problem is and and this happens quite a bit in, in private for profit ems is that uh their definition of a patient is anyone on scene who happens to have a bank account or an insurance card um not necessarily whether they actually have injuries or not um uh, and that's one of been one of the few bones of contention between myself and my employer is is uh, uh, in the past I've gotten a lot more refusals than they're comfortable with. But we are uh, by and large those were refusals on third party call nine one one calls, you know, and, and we are dispatched as a matter of course as as a matter of protocol for assaults and uh, motor vehicle accidents, um, and quite often. 
we get there and there's absolutely no one who has been injured, uh, no one who requested an ambulance. And in fact, specifically uh, said they didn't want an ambulance yet. The police officers on scene kept us coming just, you know, just to be safe. Uh, be on the safe side. Uh, and then when we arrive, we've made patient contact and our employer, employer requires us to, to obtain refusals. Even though in pretty much any other system, uh, the people we encountered would not be considered patients. We would have cleared from scene no patient found. Um, and and in, this, in this case, I think Mr. DeAnda would have been a, uh, a no patient found. Uh, thank you for your service, sir. Appreciate you helping the, the victims out. Here's a, uh, here's a Band-Aid and some gauze wrap. And uh, go wash that and take care of it when you get home. Thanks a lot. That's what should have been done. Um, rather than send the man a $140 bill. Sends, sends the wrong message. Right, I agree 100%. You got one more story for us? This one is, uh, is, is kind of a, um, uh, a troubling account of the shooting in Orlando. Um, uh, medics from Orlando Fire Department were barred from entering the building um, during, the, during the standoff. Uh, and there's some question whether uh, uh, some lives that could have been saved that weren't uh, uh, resulted from from the uh, from them being barred from the scene. Um, you know, we know now that the the, the uh, shooter uh, came in and and uh, and shot the the doorman and and security guard and or engaged in gunfire with the security guard. Shot his way into the club. Shot a few people, uh, and police were on scene within minutes. But then he barricaded himself in a bathroom. Um, while other victims lay outside and, and the police managed to get into the club and get him hemmed up in a bathroom. Uh, and then inexplicably, I don't know the, the, uh, all the story, but inexplicably they gave up all that ground they had gained and backed out of the club. Uh, and while this was going on, uh, members of Orlando Fire were not allowed inside the club to treat victims. There was uh, there was never a warm zone established. The entire club, apparently, according uh, uh, while the police were were dealing with it, was considered a hot zone, and, and the Orlando medics were not allowed inside. Um, I don't think it's it's something we can fault the Orlando Fire Department for, but it certainly uh, brings to mind some questions whether uh, some better communication uh, or some refining of their active shooter response and a rescue task force uh, um, protocols uh, couldn't be done. Um, you know, looks like there might be some tweaking uh, that needs to go on there. Yeah, I don't know about this, man. I mean, I, I might have to take the other side of this. I mean, this guy was in the bathroom with with hostages. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that, yeah, you barricade this guy inside the door and, uh, you know, you, you take the stance of, uh, you know, we, we now have the support or we now have the, the outside of this club and then everybody needs to get out of here. I'm going to kill all these hostages. Mm -hmm. um, what, what do you do? Do you yeah. still stay there or do you get out of the club? Secondarily, I don't consider that scene to be warm at all. If this guy's got an assault rifle, he's killed all these people. And uh, I don't think sending EMS into that. that now, I think the right thing to do is to get people taken care of. I, I agree with that. But, again, is the scene safe? i got to think the scene isn't safe, man. We won't know the entire story uh, for some months, I'm, I'm sure, until they've analyzed the events and, and written a, a detailed after-action report. Um, but I would say that if, if uh, the shooter is barricaded in one uh, 
in a bathroom with hostages, um, that it, it's not implausible that EMS personnel be, al- be allowed inside the club, outside the bathroom area, uh, to render care and, and start extricating people uh, uh, or set up an extrication checkpoint and start getting people outside. Um, I don't know that that happened, and some people are raising the, the question that uh, are raising the, the concern that that didn't happen, uh, and they don't know if they, they could have helped or not. Um, I don't want to point blame at the police department either. The police uh, officers uh, transported, uh, extricated a number of people and were putting tourniquets on people, uh, which probably is one of the better things to, you know, one of the few things we do that can, can actually uh, um, do a lot of good in that situation. So the, the police officers were doing uh, everything that they could uh, for the victims. But, you know, like anything, uh, uh, of this magnitude that goes on, you can't plan for it, and and no battle plan survives uh, first contact with the enemy wholly intact. Uh, we we find out things we can do better. Uh, we find find out things we'll we'll do differently. God forbid if the next time occurs. Um, and let's hope we uh, in in the coming months uh, learn from this, and and uh, if or when another incident occurs, we'll be able to deal with it even better. Yeah, I agree, and and it'd be interesting to see how this plays out. But uh, not knowing the you know the specifics as to why, I think that we have to respect you know kind of what we've always done. And yeah. I got to tell you, you know, we talk about this we talk about this warm zone um, that we've been preparing for. Uh, you know, I, I remember getting my folks ready for warm zone training that was scheduled for September, uh, and then on August 9th is when the Ferguson event started. So, you know, it was really interesting that we had another month to go before our warm zone training, and then we're right in the middle of, uh, you know, what could be a very, very dangerous uh, situation for the EMTs and paramedics. But I think that we haven't done enough research in how we can effectively make this work. I mean, it would have been good maybe for a couple of those, you know, police officers to grab a leg, Mm -hmm. grab an arm, and pull people out of the club to waiting ambulances as well. But again, armchair quarterbacking and... But I think we do have to do, you know, we have to look at these scenes. We have to look at the auroras and we have to look at the <laughs> Sandy Hooks and we have to look at the, the pulse shootings. And, and we've got to really have a, a game plan of how we can make these work. You know, you said it. Uh, hopefully there's not another, you know, God forbid there's another shooting. But I, I think that really is is uh, wishful thinking more than yeah. willful thinking, Kelly. But I think that we have to take all these shootings, we have to lay them out, and we have to be able to develop a plan as to when this happens in our service area, how we're going to be able to maximize and save as many lives as possible. Yeah, you know, if nothing else, this this once again reinforces the the uh, the thinking that that um, while tactical EMS has its place and, and dedicated tactical medics have their place uh, in active shooter situations, um, I think it's necessary that all EMS providers have some degree of tactical response training, uh, at least the bare minimum skill set and and knowledge that they need to go inside a warm zone uh, and and render care uh, 
before uh, the scene is is totally secured, um, and and the pulse shooting you know drives that point home. Uh, I think uh, the, our paradigm in, in EMS as far as scene safety has shifted, uh, and is going to continue to shift. But this is something that EMS agencies need to address uh, nationwide. Uh, I think we all need to include some type of tra- tactical training uh, in our in our curricula from the very beginning. Yeah, not only that, man, but I would even go above. I'm with you 100%, and I like that. I would even say uh, tactical training, critical care training. We have all these outside certifications, but I think what we need to do is we need to put them a little bit more in the forefront and then make those requirements for uh, continuing education. But, hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. So hit us up with your comments, concerns, questions, suggestions, uh, listener questions at the show at ems1.com. And for myself and fellow blowhard Chris Sabalero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.